I have been, just to out myself here, I have been sort of a card-carrying liberal my whole life, very on the progressive side. I voted for Clinton and Gore and Kerry and Obama and then Clinton again, and I will probably almost certainly vote for Biden. So I'm not, I'm not at all pushing a conservative side on this. I do believe that racism and sexism exist and that they're problematic and that they do need to be systemically addressed. It's my view that ideas on this need to be kept fluid and open and that we all really need to be willing to have a dialogue around these things and be you know, open to criticism, which you know, obviously includes me being open to criticism from you guys. So my own personal views are that all human beings are equally worthy of dignity and of being seen and treated as human beings. And, you know, I fully concede that there are currently in 2023 problems with sexism and racism that exist and do need to be addressed. And, and so I want to make sure that, you know, this doesn't come off as any sort of an anti-DEI talk, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I really want to acknowledge the places where I think it has things right. But then I want to be critical of the places where I think it has things wrong. And just a word sort of at the top to give sort of a meta view, you know, this is integral life. And so anytime we talk about something like this that has this level of complexity, I would encourage everyone to keep in mind the idea of polarity. And so that a lot of these concepts really only make sense and exist in polarity to their opposites. So for instance, justice and equity. Justice and equity are kind of two sides of a polarity. If we overemphasize justice, we can often lose the view of equity, you know, really hardcore law and order can lose the nuance of a system that's maybe biased against a certain group of people. And if we have too much focus on equity, then we might lose a sense of justice. So, you know, the Me Too movement, which, you know, was a very historically necessary thing, you know, I would argue that it began to go a little bit too far and lose sight of justice and things like due process and, you know, the idea being that justice and equity need to be always in balance with each other. The same thing we could say, like, you know, diversity, diversity is, is great, right? You know, but what's the polar opposite of diversity? Well, that would be homogeneity. I can say it. And the idea being that while diversity is great and we want diversity, like in our classrooms and in our boardrooms, you know, we don't want it so diverse that we have neo-Nazis or KKK members in there. So there's always a play of these things that have to be kept in sort of a fluid and living balance. And so that's going to be the case through, through this, this whole thing. So <clears throat> I would encourage you to just sort of keep that in mind. Okay. So with that, we'll get into our first point. So the seven deadly sins of diversity, equity, and inclusion. The first one is an overly simplistic view of privilege. That's the first one. So I would define privilege as access to power, access to money, education, influence, work, or upward mobility. Okay, I think that's, that's a decent definition of what privilege is. And, you know, we live in a world, in the DEI world, where there's this charge that minorities and women have historically been disenfranchised from privilege. And I think that's inarguable. You know, I, I think there's a, an overwhelming tidal wave of evidence to show the proof of that. And then the question, of course, is how much is that still going on today? To what degree? And what do we have to do about it? What should we do about it? Right? That's, that's where the sort of the meat of the talk is. So I would argue, though, that while DEI focuses on race and gender, it ignores three fundamental things that are actually equally important when we look at the economic and social data. 
And those three things are class or economic status, level of education, and your family of origin, how many parents you have and what socioeconomic status you grow up in. So those three things, class, education, family of origin, I'm going to argue in this, in this first point that they are equally, if not more important than race and gender in 2023. And before I get into that argument, I want to just sort of, I want to again pause and make a meta note here that that's five places of privilege that I'm talking about. But we really could ex extend the concept of privilege in many, many places. You know, there's, there's body type, there's intelligence, there's cultural attractiveness, which is a huge benefit in, in the culture in which you live. There's kinesthetic ability, right? If I have an eight kinesthetic ability, that might not help me on Wall Street, but it is going to help me in the NFL. There's the big five personality traits, which really are, there's a lot of data that they show that can help define what makes people successful in places like the West and America. But those same things that make you successful in the West would be a detriment if those were your top personality traits in a place like Japan. So limited view of diversity. This is my second deadly sin of DEI. There's a limited view of diversity. So I'm going to, this is going to be interwoven throughout this entire talk really. But the idea really is that with too much of the DEI movement, it's like they want diversity of skin color, but they don't want diversity of ideas or of thought. So it's like everyone has to think the same thing, but they want everyone to look different. So, you know, to me, this isn't really very diverse. Diversity, to me, it would seem would include diversity of viewpoints as well. Not to the point where you have a Nazi in your group, but you probably could have a conservative in your group, you know, and you could probably stretch yourself to, to be inclusive of someone who looked at the geopolitical world a little differently than you did. So... This is important because higher education is getting more and more stratified. It's getting more and more stratified to the left. And by way of example, so in higher education, the Democrats versus the Republicans. Um, in the STEM fields, there's four Democrats to every one Republican. You know, that's on balance, but it's not too terrible. But in psychology and philosophy, it's 11 Democrats to every one Republican. In the administration, it's 12 to 1. In sociology and in English, it's 27 to 1. And in anthropology, where so much of this work is centered, it is a staggering 42 to 1. That is not diverse. Um, you know, 42 to 1 is exclusively Democrats, exclusively people on the left. And I would imagine if you were an intellectual conservative anthropologist, you might not feel super safe speaking up. Isn't what that what this is about? So uh, the foundation for individual rights, FIRE, which is sort of like a corollary to the ACLU, but with a much stronger emphasis on the First Amendment, they found that liberal schools forced twice as many disinvitations as conservative schools did. And they found that uh, they created 10 times more disruptions to free speech events like talks than conservative schools. And there was a large study done by the Heterox Academy, and they showed that 64% of the students that they interviewed across the country agreed that the climate on their campus prevents them from saying things they believe. So 64% of students now agree that the climate on their campus prevents them from saying things they believe. That's interesting. That's very interesting. You know, I graduated school a generation ago, and 
I never felt any pressure to censor myself in, in any way. So that's, that's really a shame. Point number three is that DEI uh, can be intolerant, ironically. So if you're in the DEI space and you're intolerant, <laughs> you need to check yourself. You need to open your goddamn eyes, right? Because some, something is afoot. The DEI space can view ideas as dangerous and speech as dangerous, and those are stupid ideas, okay? They're stupid fucking ideas. Ideas aren't dangerous. Ideas aren't dangerous. Ideas are just ideas. They, they get debated. You talk to someone, you debate them publicly, and you demonstrate that their idea is stupid and your idea is better. That's how you combat actual violence. You combat actual violence with speech. So you don't want to repress speech because then all you allow people have to do is violence. If you don't let them talk, then the only option you give them is violence. So let everybody share their ideas, even the dumb ones that you find scary and threatening. You know, let the people on the far right talk. They out themselves. You know where they are. Defeat their ideas with your mind, right? We don't have to go and oppress everything. It's very anti-liberal. So the fourth point is an overemphasis on oppression and power. The, the, the fourth deadly sin is an overemphasis on oppression and power. So this is one I'm really passionate about, and uh, I'm going to spend some time here. Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is, is something that we all know. So, well, you may not know this, but what I'm, the point I'm going to make should be obvious to everybody. Kenyans from Africa and marathons. So since 1960, Kenyans have been dominating marathon races all over the world. They, they just simply dominate the sport, which is interesting because, uh, you know, the ones that dominate running, they're from a tribe that only makes up about 3% of the population of Kenya. Um, and there's lots of reasons they're finding out. There, there's a particular thing with their genetics. Um, there's a way that the altitude at which they live there's a whole cultural way that they are rewarded for you know, how they run and why they run and all these things. The idea being that Kenyans dominate marathons every year for the last 60 years. And is it because of oppression? Is it because they're gaming the system? Is it because Kenyans have found a way to repress other people and to stack the deck that this meritocracy, what appears to be a meritocracy is actually really just a rigged game. And you know, it's a rigged game because the same people keep winning. And if the same people keep winning these dirty Kenyans, then it must mean oppression is afoot. What other explanation could there be? What other explanation could there possibly be for Kenyans winning marathons? Well, there are lots of reasons, genetics, environmental, cultural, um, there's lots of reasons that Kenyans win marathons and oppression is not one of them. The quality of outcomes equals racist and sexist policies. Let me just, let me fly through this one real quick. I think we could have a, we could have an honest debate about this. I, I think we could honestly debate this idea of, okay, what if, what if you come to me and you say, look, the orchestra is almost all white or it is all white. And I'm concerned because I think the reason, you know, black kids, black adults, people of color come to the symphony and they don't see anybody here that looks like them. And if we just keep doing blind auditions, we're never going to get representation in the, in the symphony, a black representation in the symphony, because they're not drawn to, we're caught in a, in a loop here, in other words. Okay. Okay. 
So then you say, okay, so maybe we will allow 20% of the, of the hires to be, to be people of color. But then the idea, this, if you're talking about equality of outcomes in this way, you have to have a way of measuring progress and you have to have a way of measuring when it would stop, when it would be over. So in other words, if you do that, maybe you run that experiment for 20 years and you see what changes. Maybe you run it for 30 years and you see what changes. Um, see if see if representation changes, but you should have a you should have a bar by which you say, okay, this is working or it isn't working, and if it's working, we can begin to scale it down and go back to just blind auditions. Sixth point, the sixth deadly sin of DEI, I'm going to call plain and simple, going to call you out, tribalism. So tribalism. There's a woman named Susan Neiman. She wrote a book called Left Is Not Woke, and she's arguing that. Um, that wokeism isn't actually liberal, which is, I'm sort of making the same point. Um, but she said that she's found that many, quote, contemporary voices considered to be leftist have abandoned the philosophical ideas that are central to any left-wing standpoint, a confirmation to universalism over tribalism, a firm distinction between justice and power, and a belief in the possibility of progress. And she continues that all these ideas are connected because they begin with a concern for the marginalized people of the world, and they end up by reducing each one to the prism and the prison of their marginalization. It's a great quote. So right now in our culture, we have an absolutely tribalistic emphasis on race and sex rather than on a universal view of humanity. So it's now considered by a lot of DEI spaces, if I say that I see people as humans first, I'm considered either to be hopelessly naive or overtly racist. The insistence is that I see people only through the lens of their marginalization, which is to me insulting. If I look at my, some of my close friends and only look at them through the lens of their gender or their race, rather than the entirety of their humanity. There is a whole thing now too going on where if, if someone says, um, you know, I don't see color, right? That's, that's now considered kind of like your, your racist uncle, you know, being hopelessly naive. The idea of a colorblind society is considered something that's not only naive, but overtly racist. And, you know, I understand the argument here. The argument is that if I say as a, as a white person, hey, I don't see color, then my, my friend who's a person of color will say, well, you have that luxury. You have the luxury of going through the world and not seeing race. I don't have that luxury. I, I'm, I'm, I'm on this side of a black face and I experience how untrue that is all the time. So that statement, while adorable, um, doesn't really work because that's not the world we live in. And you're actually being a little naive and not very helpful if that's the view that you're taking. It's a perfectly valid counter-argument. I mean, it really, it's a very, it's a perfectly valid counter-argument. But to me, we can have both. That my person of color friend can say that to me and I can say, what, you know what, you're right. But I'm still going to raise my children with this ideal of a colorblind society. I'm going to raise my children that I want them to view people by the quality of their character, not by the color of their skin, by the content of their soul. Right? I want I want you to view people as humans first. And then we can talk about and acknowledge privilege. But as we've said, privilege is more than just race, right? 
If you got 10 million bucks in the bank, you're pretty goddamn privileged no matter what you look like. Okay. Seven deadly sins of DEI, the final point, seventh point, is that it is anti-liberal. As I said at the top of the call, I am a lifelong liberal, proudly liberal, proudly progressive. That has not changed. My politics has not changed. Um, so this idea, this anti-liberal idea of white fragility is very dumb. It's a dumb idea. White fragility is a stupid idea because is there a kernel of truth in it? Sure. I could concede there's a kernel of truth in it, but really what it amounts to in the way it's used, it's just like Freud, Sigmund Freud in the last century. He very hilariously, you know, Freud was of course obsessed with sex. His whole theory of psychological development, everything was reducible to sex and sexual desires. Really, that was it. You know, there was no no higher transcendent function for humans. It was all about sex. And so Freud, when people began criticizing his theory as overly obsessed with sex and too narrowly defined for the human experience, he would just simply say, well, that's because you're sexually repressed. So he would just say, you know, my theory explains your criticism in a way that I don't have to engage you with any intellectual honesty whatsoever. And, you know, it's, it's an absurdist argument. It's not an argument. It's, 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 it's a dodge. And so if, if someone comes to me and they say, well, I think you're being white, for, you know, it's white fragility. It's like, well, that's, that's not an argument. There isn't a point there. Like, argue the merits of my points. Don't accuse me of something that dismisses my argument so you don't have to step two. Defeat me in the arena of ideas. Okay. So White supremacy, you know, this is also a really stupid idea, accusing all people in one racial category of complicity by nature of their skin color. <laughs> you know, boy, if you can't see the irony of that position, that that is the very thing it's trying to not be, that, that is simply a racist policy. To accuse me of wrongdoing, to accuse me of a what would it be? Original sin. It's very much like original sin, right? It's like, well, I was born white, so I can't help but be immersed in this culture of whiteness. I'll never get out of it. I'm, I'm part of this white supremacist system um, unless I'm anti-racist in the way that these people, Ibrahim X. Kendi tells me I have to be. And if I question him at all, then it's because of it's white fragility. So I need to just kowtow and keep my mouth shut because silence is violence. And uh, so not keep my mouth shut, I guess. Actually, I, I have to be an ally. I have to speak up. Which gets into this whole idea. Silence is, vi is violence. Silence is violence. That is, a, that is a very, very stupid idea. That is a hallmark of a fascist mindset. You have a right not to speak. You have a right not to speak and for it not to mean a goddamn thing. That's your right. You don't want to talk. If you don't call in, if you don't... You know, the people that are on this call, it's not like, well, if you don't call in and say something to me, that's violent. You have to call in, right? That's, that's compelled speech. Um, silence as violence is, is not a good idea. Um, so that's another way it's anti-liberal. Other ways that DEI is anti-liberal is trial by public opinion, uh, by having very much a group think, by being close to other viewpoints. Um, being fired for a lack of adherence to a group ideology, which happens all the time, being blacklisted for the same thing. And the only thing I can say about this anti-liberal position of DEI is that it is beginning to turn on itself. I'm beginning to see signs that 
These purity tests, when this is taken to these ridiculous extremes it gets taken, there is an idea that we have to root out, root out all of the people that aren't just like us in this organization and it becomes a headhunting thing where, you know, how devoted are you to these ideas? Because God help that you have a different idea. Wouldn't that be horrible? Wouldn't that be violent? And if you believe that ideas are dangerous and words are actual violence, then, which are two of the most anti-liberal things you could possibly believe, if you believe those things, then you're justified in doing just about anything you need to in order to protect people from those terrible words and those dangerous ideas. <laughs>